Jesus says, verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. And Father, we humbly ask now, please take away from us, from within us, Lord, anything that would distract or hinder we ask that you would prepare us by the power of your Holy Spirit, just physically, mentally, spiritually, in every way, that we might have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to us as this part of your church, as we open a portion of your word and look through it again. Please, Lord, help us now. We want to hear the voice of your Spirit, and we ask that the ministry of your Spirit would teach us from the word of God this morning. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. Isaiah chapter 53, a prophecy regarding Jesus Christ, tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows, and it says that he was acquainted, the idea is familiar with grief. I can't help but to think that perhaps one of the main reasons for that could have been the repeated occasions that Jesus was basically hurt and let down by people. I think when you look at this passage of scripture that we're studying together this morning, we see the betrayal of Judas. We'll see at the end of the chapter the prediction of Peter's ultimate denial of the Lord before the night was over. It gives a very fitting illustration of that. And in light of that, I want to say this. If you are someone here this morning that has hurt or let someone down, I want you to know that Jesus understands that. And Jesus is able to continue to love you through that and to help you work through that process if you failed or hurt or let others down. And on the other side of that, if you are someone here this morning who perhaps you have been hurt or let down or betrayed in some way by someone else, I want you to know as well that there is no one that understands the pain and the experience of that better than Jesus. And he can help you process that. And he understands the emotions and the experiences that go along with that. John chapter 13, as we've sort of looked at the beginning and we'll finish it this morning, is really a chapter of contrast. It shows us the incredible 
love and humility of Jesus in serving others versus the incredible pride and selfishness of this man Judas Iscariot and ultimately how Judas betrays Jesus. He betrays the other companions who were part of the ministry team really to just serve himself. And it's such a contrast when you look at the chapter of the complete opposite thing in their humanity the background basically is this as we take a running start into verse 18 this morning remember jesus in chapter 13 we saw was just moved to show the disciples the full extent of his love he wanted to demonstrate to them his love to the best of his ability and he did that by humbly washing the disciples feet during this meal that they were sharing together through a humble act of servanthood jesus began washing the disciples feet we're also told in the beginning of the chapter at this point that the devil has now put the desire into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, which will ultimately cause his death. Jesus also has now indicated among the group, just sort of generically, that one among them has impure intentions or impure motivations. He didn't specify what he meant by that. He will now, we'll see this morning. But he knew who was going to betray him in this last hour. And after having washed the disciples' feet, he has just said in verse 17, If you know these things, blessed are you if you also do them. So he was telling the disciples that if they would love and serve others instead of being self-serving, which typically comes naturally to most of us in our humanity, that if they would love and serve others as he did, they would have a blessed experience in their life personally. Now, it's in connection to that statement, Jesus continues, verse 18, to then say, I do not speak concerning all of you, he says, for I know whom I have chosen. So Jesus here makes a statement and says, listen, you can be blessed if you do as I just told you to. However, he says, listen, because I know everyone among you, this statement is not going to come true for all of you who are here among me right now as disciples. And the reason, of course, was because Jesus knew among those whom he chose that a betrayer was in their midst. That's why he says here in the text, I know whom I've chosen. Jesus was aware of what was happening in Judas's heart toward him at this moment. He was aware that this man, Judas, whom he had chosen, think of it again, as we said before, who he had offered so much of himself to. He had shown himself to Judas in many different ways. He had spoken into Judas's heart so many times. Judas heard Jesus's teachings. He saw Jesus's power. He saw his miracles firsthand. But yet Jesus knew that he never fully surrendered himself inwardly in his heart to Jesus to be committed to him. And as the result of that, Judas was just playing a spiritual game. He was amidst all the rest of the disciples going through the same motions, but he was just playing the part because Judas was a self-serving man who honestly was just using the things of the Lord to serve his own purposes ultimately. And Jesus was fully aware of this. This would now culminate in a cruel and hurtful betrayal of Jesus, which Jesus even humbly allows and doesn't stop, though he could have kept it from coming to pass. Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So look what Jesus shows. Even Judas's evil actions 
against the Lord that would hurt Jesus, dishonor Jesus, and even hurt all the other people amongst whom he was connected to, those hurtful actions of Judas, his evil works, did not hinder the plan of God still. In fact, Jesus is saying here in verse 18, it actually still fulfilled what God had predicted was going to happen in advance. So Jesus is indicating here, look, even the most evil intentions of a human being, they don't overthrow the plans of God. Jesus says here in verse 18 that it actually was just going to bring about a fulfillment of something God already predicted in advance that he knew was going to transpire. And he quotes here how this action of betrayal from Judas fulfilled what's being quoted is Psalm 41. Even as one of David's close companions, as David penned that psalm, even as one of David's close companions, whom he shared meals and fellowship with, betrayed him, Jesus shows that ultimately that scripture was a prophecy of how Judas, one of his close companions, would lift up his heel, the idea kind of the picture is, to like stomp or kick someone in the gut, that someone would lift his heel up against him in betrayal as well, in a bitter act of betrayal in that relationship. Yet even all those things I said are being used by God to ultimately still orchestrate the plans and purposes of God in the end. The, the most resistant, rebellious, evil things people can do to come against the ways of God, God can still take those things and orchestrate them and still bring about his purposes, fulfill his plans in the end. And the reason why is because God has an amazing ability to take even the worst and the most painful and the most evil things done by people. And, and to hurt, to betray, to harm, and somehow God can use events even like that, though they're not pleasant experiences, he can use even events like that to still orchestrate ultimately his final plan in the end and to still bring about his good purposes and even something good. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament is one of the greatest illustrations of that. You read Genesis 37 through 50 and you see this illustrated perfectly how God can take harmful, evil, hurtful things being done and ultimately bring out his good and wonderful purposes as the result in the end. And he can take those things and like a master chemist, he mixes together hurt and evil and betrayal and cruelty and human sin and he mixes it together and he still brings about what he wants in the end anyway. And even something good in the end anyway. Remember, Joseph at the end of his life, who was treated horribly by his family. I mean, if there was anybody who had the right to have a nervous breakdown, it was Joseph. And yet Joseph says in the end, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. He indicates what you did was very evil to me. But God took your evil and he brought about something good as the result of it in my life and ultimately by Joseph being in a place where he then was able to help many others because of his own personal experiences. Well, Jesus goes on, verse 19, to say, Now I tell you, before it comes, that is the betrayal, that when it does come to pass you may believe that I am he. So Jesus explains here that he was predicting this act of betrayal to demonstrate purposely to the disciples once again his knowledge and control of all things as God. That he was the I am. And that's the only reason why he could predict what would happen before it came to pass. Because only God has knowledge of everything. So Jesus revealed this betrayal before it happened to show his deity once again. 
to demonstrate that he could speak of something by his divine power and tell what would happen because he knew all things even before they transpired. And here he told them what would happen in advance so that when it came to pass, he says, your faith would be strengthened that I am the great I am. And let me just say something in connection to that. This is what predictive prophecy does. Predictive prophecy strengthens our faith. One of the primary purposes of prophecy in the word of God is not for Christians to study it and feel really smart. It's for us to be able to see that we serve a God who lives outside of the time continuum and can speak today about something that may not happen for hundreds of years for now because he spans all of time and eternity and because he is God. And therefore, as we have prophecy given to us, so much of it primarily in the Old Testament, which is why the Old Testament has such great value to it, prophecy is given to us to demonstrate to us that we serve a credible God a trustworthy God, a reliable God, that when he says something, it will come to pass. And so everything he says, we can rely upon it. And so that when we see God predict something, and then hundreds of years later, specifically it transpires and comes to pass, we can say, wow, God's word's reliable. And it strengthens our faith. Even as Jesus said, I'm telling you this in advance so that when it's fulfilled, your faith will be strengthened, that I am God and that you'll see who I am. So listen, let me encourage you. Love prophecy. Prophecy is valuable. It's one of the things that encourages us and strengthens us and deepens us in our faith as people. And Jesus is, in a sense, giving a prophetic word about this betrayal that is now coming. He then goes on in verse 20 to say, when, or excuse me, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me, Jesus says, receives him that's the father of course who sent me so even as jesus would send forth his disciples as servants to do his work the father had sent the son of god into this world to perform the works of god now in that vein of understanding what jesus is saying here is therefore to receive one of jesus followers he says would be likened to receiving Jesus himself as they represented the Lord and, and, and performed his works and they came from him fulfilling his desires. So in the same way, Jesus was fulfilling the desires of the Father in heaven who sent him to perform the works of God that he was intended to perform. Now here's what becomes important in connection to that. To receive Jesus is to receive the Father or to receive God. Now, on the other side of that, that also means this. To reject Jesus was to reject God. And to reject Jesus is still to reject God. And this is a very important truth. For Jesus came as the extension of God, the representative of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And rejecting Jesus or casting Jesus aside is unimportant trampling over Jesus and the importance of who he is is deeply offensive to the one who sent him. It's deeply offensive. In fact, Hebrews says it this way. Listen to Hebrews 10, verse 28 and 29. It says, anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit 
of grace. To reject Jesus, to cast aside Jesus as unimportant, to diminish the value of Jesus, to to insult the gracious Spirit of God demonstrated in giving Jesus, the Bible says, is not only an utter travesty, but it is a very dangerous thing. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, "It, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In regards to rejecting the graciousness of his spirit in sending his son when we cast Jesus aside and walk over him in some ways perhaps as being unimportant or unessential for our lives. It's a dangerous place to be in our hearts. Verse 21 says when Jesus had then said these things he was troubled or became agitated in his spirit and he testified now saying here's the bomb most assuredly I say to you one of you will betray me. So Jesus now knowing and starting to think through the painful betrayal relationship that's about to happen among the 12, the close camaraderie that was among them, imagine this, he begins to have just turmoil inside of his heart as a man. Remember, Jesus was was God, but yet he was living fully as a man simultaneously so that he could experience all the human experiences that you and I experience. And in his humanity, amongst this relationship, he begins to experience turmoil inside of his human emotions. It says he was troubled in his spirit. Uh, The language there indicates that one's deepest emotions being agitated or stirred up like like a violent storm. And perhaps you've gone through an experience before hardships or difficulties where you can relate to that, where it just feels like inside there's a tornado of emotions going on inside of you, where you are so troubled in spirit, it's like a, it's like a out of control sea, a hurricane of emotions just going on inside of you. And I'm sure inside of Jesus, there was quite a range of emotions that he was experiencing. For example, just the grief and hurt from the violation of this close companion who is going to utterly betray him, who is going to turn the knife in his back, the, the hurt of that, the disappointment. No, no, as well, the worry and concern of the impact and the effect that this betrayal of Judas was now going to have on all the other disciples. Because whenever one does something like that, it doesn't just affect one person, it stumbles everybody else connected to it. And how Judas's betrayal and Judas turning away from the Lord was now basically going to be something that wasn't just going to hurt Jesus, it was going to stumble and confuse and cause hurt for everybody else that was connected as well. All the other disciples who were going to be impacted by this because of the connection that they had and the fractured relationships that come about as a result. And I think as well, Jesus was probably troubled in his spirit just as much out of worry and fear and sadness for Judas himself. And what this was going to bring upon his life and and the very fact that how this was now going to sabotage Judas and ultimately lead to his own suicidal experience as the result of what he had done and the grief and the inability to overcome. And, and, I, and I just want to say this. How, I hate to say how wonderful, but it, it in some ways is true. How wonderful to know that as we experience in this life hard things like Jesus was experiencing here, things like, for example, maybe the utter pain and difficulty associated with betrayal 
among relationships and the fracturing of relationships to realize that Jesus truly understands that. And he's experienced those things. And it's not as if he's disconnected and, and, oh, I know you're God, but you don't know what this feels like. No, he does know what it feels like. In fact, listen, he knows what it feels like, and please don't be insulted, even more deeply than you do. He was God. He was fully innocent. I don't think any of us in relationship dynamics can ever honestly say that we're fully innocent. Jesus was completely innocent and he was utterly betrayed, deeply wounded, and experienced these things in his humanity and therefore, listen, be encouraged, he can help you process it. You don't have to die as a victim under the pain of it. He loves you. He understands it. He can help you process it and work through it. And he understands the feelings, the, the emotions, all the things that you're going through, the thoughts. He understands. That's liberating. Lord, okay, you understand. This is normal, all the stuff I'm dealing with. Help me to process it. Lord, you overcame it. You processed it. Help me as well. And he can do that. Well, after seeming noticeably disturbed and unsettled, Jesus then drops the bomb in verse 21 there by just saying out loud, I need to let you boys know something, he says. One of you is going to betray me. One of you in this room is going to betray me. I can't imagine how that shocking news came across among a group of 12 close comrades like those disciples. They had spent three years together traveling around. There was a camaraderie. And the word betray, again, just the word itself, isn't that such a strong term? I mean, betray just speaks of painful treachery, hurt, and deception, and disappointment, and letdown, and mistreatment. And to hear one among their band of brothers who had done so much together, they had served together and enjoyed company together and had all these connections, and to hear one among their band of brothers was now going to do this to Jesus, I'm telling you, listen, it must have dropped like a bomb in that room to hear that that one of them was actually going to be the one that would do this. Well, seeing Jesus look concerned and hearing him now say, one of you is going to betray me, it, it tells us in verse 22 that then the disciples hearing this bomb dropped looked at one another perplexed about whom Jesus spoke. So as they heard this, the disciples are confused. In fact, I think they're even a little bothered to hear that one of their close companions could do such a thing. How could this possibly be? Again, we have to put ourselves into their sandals, especially they're thinking after all Jesus did and how well Jesus treats people, how good he has been to all of us and blessed us and so kind and loving of all people to hurt and dishonor. No doubt they're thinking, how could someone stab Jesus in the back? I mean, of all people, how could that possibly even be a reality? It seemed hard to envision happening and more, it had to have seemed so utterly cruel to even think about that of all people, that that could be done to Jesus himself. Who would ever want to hurt the Lord? Or worse, betray him? Actually betray Jesus? So it says the disciples were perplexed about whom would do this, it says. Especially among them, he had poured so much into their lives. It brought great concern and grief over this entire group. 
Now, the other gospel accounts give us an interesting insight here. They tell us that when Jesus said this, John doesn't record it. The other accounts say that when Jesus said this, among the disciples, they actually started conversating and saying, is it I? In other words, they all of a sudden, as they heard Jesus say this, they began fearing their own human weakness and their own capacity to fail the Lord. It scared them to think that it might be one of them. They're thinking, oh no, could it be me? Am I the one that would do that? Now, I think there's something very beautiful that the Holy Spirit records that for us because let me just say, it's sort of a healthy thing to maintain a fear of your own potential to fail. It's somewhat of a safeguard to have an awareness of your own sinful tendency to just believe the bible jeremiah 17 says that your heart is deceitful that my heart is desperately wicked and we don't even know our own hearts and there's something very healthy to realize that you have the capacity i have the capacity to do great evil that i have the potential just like everyone else to fail miserably and to sort of sense a little bit of the tendency and potential of judas in my own heart and there's something very safe about that as the disciples began to say, oh no, is it I? Could it be me? And, and let me say as well in connection to this, we should never take betraying Jesus as a light matter or no big deal. They were perplexed about this. It should perplex us that a supposed follower of Jesus would betray him. It really should perplex us. I think as Christians sometimes we... we I certainly want to be gracious, but we can become way too casual about just sort of cheaply betraying the Lord. And, and as if somehow we begin to trample underfoot the Son of God and the blood that was shed to forgive our sins and we insult the Spirit of grace. And it should perplex us when a person would ever be willing to selfishly betray the Lord for the pursuit of their own desires. That's a travesty. That's a travesty when someone would do that. They were perplexed. The disciples didn't take this lightly. It bothered them. They were concerned. Verse 23, look at it. It says that I was leaning on Jesus' bosom, leaning back against him, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, and Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. So as they're reclining around this table, eating this dinner, Jesus announces outwardly now that one of them is going to actually be the betrayer among them. And Peter, he can't take not knowing who this is among them. And so because of that, apparently he's too far away where he's positioned in the table dinner there. He's too far away to ask the Lord himself directly so we're told John apparently, and that's John's referring to himself here in these verses, John was apparently right next to Jesus, close enough where he could actually lean back against Jesus as they're reclining there at this dinner and lean back against Jesus' chest and kind of quietly ask him. So Peter, realizing that John could do that, he motions to John, ask him who it is, man. What are you doing? Ask him who it is. And... and John, referring to himself, interesting we get this insight here. Look how he refers to himself there in verse 23. He says that he was one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, this is the first time we see this. John in his gospel uses that title and term for himself a few different times. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Now listen, we understand doctrinally Jesus loves everybody. He loves everybody. It's not some disciples he loves and others he doesn't love. He loves everybody. And, he, and, and I wonder if some of the disciples at some point after John wrote out his gospel and he was all excited and he finished it to say, John, just one thing. Great, great book. Loved it. One thing. Come here. Jesus actually loves everybody, John. He loves everybody. He loves all of us. But as we look at what John says of himself, you have to admit this. John apparently was very sensitive to the awareness of Jesus' love for him as an individual. What John indicates by calling himself by this title a few times is that he knew and perceived that Jesus loved him in a very personal way. And John said, listen, I can't talk to you about your own experience with the Lord, but let me tell you this. I know he sure must love me. And John just had this deep awareness between what experience happened between just him and the Lord on a personal level that, man, I don't get it and understand it, but this is an unusual love. And I don't know a whole lot and I can't explain a whole lot, but John knew, I know Jesus loves me. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And this is what John's indicating as he had this deep sense of the love of the Lord for him. And let me just remind us all how wonderful if we could all come into that place. I think it would honestly bless the heart of Jesus if we could have that mindset and faith of our own personal awareness of just how much the Lord loves us. That we would become more deeply aware of his love for us because I'll tell you something, that, that'll transform somebody's life. That messes you up, man. Right? That's what messed me up. It wasn't somebody chasing me with a whip. If somebody chased me with a whip, I probably just want to fight back. But there's something about love that's transformative. And when you come into an awareness of the love of Jesus, it has a powerful effect. This is why John became who he was, the aged apostle of love, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, the one who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, these beautiful things because of what he experienced in the love relationship and the awareness that he had of just the love of Jesus for him in such a powerful way. Well, verse 25 then tells us, John apparently wanted to help Peter out. It says, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Peter can't take it. He wants to know. Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. So Jesus indicates how the betrayer could now be identified here. And in so doing, it seems like, as you follow the text here, this dialogue happening between Jesus and John, where John now finds out how you could identify who the betrayer was going to be. It seems, as you read the whole text in the chapter, that this dialogue happens quietly between John and Jesus. Because the other disciples, once Judas is identified, still don't get what's going on. Which shows us something very unique here. Because John is close to the Lord, and I realize it was in proximity from a circumstantial standpoint, but because he is close to the Lord, he hears something from the Lord. And I think that's laid out for us, no doubt by the Holy Spirit, because it's a really beautiful picture. As John was leaning back on the chest of Jesus, where was he? He was close to the heart of the Lord. 
He was close to the Lord, and because he was close to the Lord, he heard things from the Lord. And can I say for you and I this morning, in a spiritual way, that was practical, but in a spiritual way, I think the same principle applies. As we are close to the Lord, and as we seek to stay close to the heart of the Lord, you're going to hear things from the Lord. You'll hear things from Jesus. Jesus will say things to you. He'll give you understandings about certain things that are beautiful and intimate and special. And it tells us going on in verse 26, having then dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after he took the piece of bread, verse 27, look at it. It says, Satan entered him. That is probably one of the most startling and eerie statements to have to read in God's inspired word that a person actually became indwelt or possessed by the devil himself that satan it says actually entered into jesus now back in verse 2 it told us that judas in this chapter had allowed the devil to put the desires of satan into his heart now here we read that because of an unrepentant condition and continual yielding himself to darkness, Satan actually now, it says at this point, takes up residence inside of Judas's life as a man to completely control him. Satan completely takes over his life and directs him by entering into his life spiritually. Listen, even as the Spirit of God, the Bible teaches enters inside of us when we surrender to Jesus Christ and then influences and directs us, here we see the reverse happening in the darkest of ways possible. In the most evil way possible, someone who is not a true follower of Jesus, and so therefore they are not sealed and protected by the Holy Spirit, Someone who is not a true follower of Jesus and who continuously availed himself to very dark practices actually became indwelt for a time by Satan himself. That is a sobering reality and should remind us as well that satanic forces are a reality. We should never, ever, ever treat these kind of things in a light and casual manner. I'm going to just fool around with this. And, oh, yeah, whatever. Just Get off my back, mommy. It's just, a, I'm, it's just a little bit of satanic thing. It's just fun. It's not fun. It's real. It's extremely, extremely dangerous. And Satan here actually enters inside of Judas, uses him to perform a great act of horrendous evil to destroy life. And then what does he do when he's done with him? He casts them aside by putting suicidal tendencies in them and Judas ends up committing suicide afterwards. This is what the devil does with lives. Oh, I don't want God's will for my life. That's too restrict. Well, the devil has a will for your life too. And I'm sure I want to advise you, you probably don't want that either. Way worse. Jesus wants to give life and bless and, and Satan wants to ruin and destroy life. He wants to get Judas to destroy the life of Jesus and then he just afterwards convinces Judas to destroy and take his own life and suicide, which is ultimately the case here. So Jesus gives this piece of bread to Judas and then says to him, Judas, what you do, do quickly. Now, isn't that interesting there to take note? Though Satan is now directly controlling Judas as a tool, Jesus is still in charge and he's controlling all the events that are still transpiring. He says, Judas, what you're going to do, go carry out your evil intention, 
But Jesus reminds us here that even when Satan is working very, very powerfully as he was in this hour, that even when Satan is working very powerfully, he never overrides the plans of God still. Jesus says, this is just on the timetable. Judas, go do what you do quickly. Verse 28 tells us Jesus having sent him away, it says that but no one at the table, notice, knew for what reason Jesus had said that to him. They thought, verse 29, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him to go buy things for the feast or maybe he was supposed to go give something, a donation to the poor. So they just hear Jesus after giving Judas this piece of bread that had been dipped in the sop. And, 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 and that day, culturally, that was sort of like a toast. When you dipped in the bread and handed it to someone else, that would be sort of equivalent as a way of honoring someone as we would give a toast to someone. That's what this was culturally in the meal. So he was honoring Judas, and then he just says to Judas, Judas, go do what you need to do and, and, and be quick about it. And the rest of the disciples are totally oblivious. They think, oh, maybe he's talking about go buy some more supplies or go give a donation to the poor that we talked about since he was the treasurer among them. But what we see here as we look at this is take notice that no one perceived that Judas was a betrayer. No one among the group when they said someone is going to betray us, instantly looked and said, it's got to be Judas. I mean, look at the way that guy dresses. He always has a little greasy mustache. I knew he was the guy. That, that, no one among them had any idea from what they could see outwardly. Judas looked like, he talked like, he acted like, he did all the same things that Jesus' true followers were doing. And yet all the while, inwardly, no one realized what was going on in his heart and the dark things that he was doing in his personal and his private life. Judas did a very good job of covering his tracks so well, nobody knew he was a spiritual phony. And as the Bible records this reality for us, it's kind of a sobering check to realize how somebody can pretend spiritually. And pretend rather well. A person can go through all the spiritual motions, participate in all the spiritual activities, and for a time they can blend in to the spiritual family. They can sort of blend in and be, have everyone around them duped and deceived. That is, except Jesus. And until it ultimately comes out and gets revealed, because it always does in time. And this is just a sobering reminder that it's possible for people to fool other people with an outward spiritual show to cover up an unhealthy spiritual condition or maybe hide some dark things that are going on in your life and play the part outwardly. But always remember, Jesus knows your heart and it's going to come out in time. It's going to come out in time. And Judas here now is confusing everyone else but he's about to carry out and reveal who he really is verse 30 says having received the piece of bread he then went out immediately and it was night and when he had gone out jesus said now the son of man is glorified and god is glorified in him if god is glorified in him god will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately so in this darkest darkest hour of human history jesus indicates now that actually these hours were going to bring about his glory and the glory of the father in heaven through his life and think about as jesus says he and the father were going to be glorified what things were happening that were going to bring about the glory of jesus and the glory of god the father well, it was things like the bitter betrayal of a close companion, 
the desertion of relationship, the horrible sufferings and painful things Jesus was going to endure in the next hours ahead, his horrific death upon the cross as the sin of the world was atoned for, and then even his being raised back from the dead by the power of the glory of the Father and his resurrection. These are the things that would contribute to the glory of God, which shows us that it's an amazing reality to see how painful human experiences like suffering and betrayal and things that we think are horrible things that Jesus and God the Father can actually sometimes be glorified in the midst of those things. We serve a God, ladies and gentlemen, that has a way to take human suffering and transform it in an incredible way into glorious things. I don't know how he does it, but he can take human suffering in the, in the worst ways and he can take betrayal and heartache and ruined relationships and, and evil activity and, and, and things that are just outwardly circumstances like, that is horrendous that's so horrible that happened that's so unfortunate or Lord this is so painful how could you let this be happening to me and we serve a God that can take those kind of things and he can transform them into really glorious matters and give us opportunities to glorify God and glorify Jesus in the midst of those things Peter describes this in 1 Peter chapter 4 listen to what he says beloved don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. And then he says this, if anyone suffers as a Christian, apparently Christians suffer, there are some that would teach, if, if, if you're a Christian and you have great faith, you will never suffer. Read your Bible. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed of it. And isn't that interesting? Oh, you don't have faith, that's why you're suffering. You're su and, and make people feel ashamed because they're suffering. There must be sin in your life, that's why you're suffering. Oh, thanks, now I'm suffering and I feel ashamed about my suffering. No, the Bible says if anyone suffers, don't be ashamed. Here's the instruction, let him glorify God in the matter. When you suffer, when I suffer, let's not get all caught up in, Lord, why and how? Here, here. I don't know the answers to that. You're going to just throw salt in your wound. Sometimes the best thing to just do is to say, Lord... How can I just glorify you in this? I don't know why and I can't change it, but how can I just glorify you in this? Let him who suffers glorify God in the matter, the Bible says. Jesus went on to say, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, as I said to the Jews, and where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, so he's told them someone's going to betray him. Now he's telling them, I'm going to leave and go somewhere and you can't follow me. Must have been very difficult, this conversation. We'll see, this is what the next three chapters will be all about. Verse 34, he then says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, he says. So Jesus here gives his disciples, notice it's not a suggestion, it's an instruction. It's a command of Jesus in contrast to the bitter betrayal among them as a family unit. He now commands love. He says to them in verse 34, I'm giving you a command 
that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also, again, second time for emphasis, love one another. Certainly we are to love the unsaved world. But a lot of times as Christians, that seems a thing that we think is our trophy. Oh, we love the world. We, we love the world. The Bible says that Jesus said, this is the command I'm concerned about. I want you to love one another as Christians. I want you to practice your love among the family of God, among the body of Christ, that we have a responsibility put upon us as Jesus followers to love one another. And what's the measure or standard of love we're to use? Well, Jesus says, here it is. It's the same standard, he says, I used to love you. As I have loved you, use that measure and standard to love one another. How did Jesus love us? Unconditionally. He doesn't put conditions on the love. It was an enduring, continuous love. It was a sacrificial love, a servant-hearted love. It was an impartial love. It was a giving love. And Jesus says, I'm giving you this command, and he calls it a new commandment. We're called to love each other. Why a new commandment? Well, I think because it's new in its uniqueness, because Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to love one another just like I've loved you. And you're going to say in your humanity, oh, that's impossible. Jesus no, no, because I can empower you supernaturally because I will live inside of you by my spirit, he's going to say in the next few chapters, so you can love in a supernatural way, just like I love you. And this is what makes it new. He gives us the power to love in a way that he loved. And he says, verse 35, by this, loving one another, all will know that you're my disciples or followers if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, this will be the identifying mark that you're my followers to people who look at you. This is your testimony to the world, that when people look upon the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, and they see us loving one another with this spiritual camaraderie, that, that is making us devoted to one another and serving and caring for one another and we exercise a loyalty to one another. The world looks on at that and they say, man, that is, that's unusual. That people with differences and diversities and who still make mistakes and hurt and anger and, and have issues, but, but they love each other because the world doesn't know that. The world's a castaway society. You offend me, I'm done with you. Done, uh, can you get in the pulpit? I'm afraid that means something in Italian. <laughs> but don't interpret that. But the world can't understand that. So the world says, why are these people like this? Jesus said, they'll know that you're connected to me when they see this love that you have among one another. It's something that speaks such volume. Interesting, so often as Christians, we think that the world will know that we're Jesus' followers because we can quote a lot of Bible verses or because we preach the gospel so well. Jesus said, no, this will be the most powerful testimony that you belong to me, the way that you love each other. Amen. That, he says, will have such a powerful impact among those who are around you. Well, Peter, you know him, he, he, he gets fixated on things, so he's back a few statements on Jesus. Lord, where are you going? <laughs> you should love one another. Let's not think about that. But where are you going? Lord, where are you going, he says. Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Now notice, what's Peter doing here? He's arguing with the Lord. Jesus says, 
I'm going away and you cannot come right now. And Peter says, Lord, why? Why? Lord, I, I'll lay down my life for you. I don't care if everybody else betrays you. And if they betray you and you have to die because you're betrayed, I'll be right there next to you and I will die with you. And Peter here doesn't like what the Lord's saying. It doesn't suit what Peter wants. So rather than accept Jesus' words in faith, he decides he's going to push for his own way instead. And he starts arguing with the Lord. Can I just say, that's always a bad place to be. It's always a bad place to start arguing with the Lord and just because you want something to say, Lord, why? I want it this way instead. And Peter here begins down this road which begins to lead to ultimately his stumbling as well. Jesus answered, look at verse 38. Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, listen, I think Peter was firmly convinced that he was that dedicated to Jesus. Peter sincerely thought, Lord, I love you. And I think Peter believed that he was that strongly committed to the Lord that he'd be willing to do that. And though Jesus appreciated Peter's sincere desire to be faithful and dedicated, he also knew Peter's human weakness. And so he was being aware of Peter's potential to waver and cave in, loving enough to tell Peter, you're really not as committed as you think you are. Peter, I really appreciate your enthusiasm but he predicts an upcoming failure of Peter that we'll see here, he mentions in verse 38, where before the night was over, Peter, you're going to die for me? Before the day's over, you're going to deny me. And not just once, three times you're going to deny me. And he reminds Peter of the failure that was coming. And I don't think Jesus says this out of disappointment or criticism, but just to humble Peter. For his own benefit, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Good reminder for all of us this morning. Self-confidence spiritually is always the first step towards spiritual failure. When we begin to get a little spiritually self-confident, that's typically when we begin to start walking on a slippery slope. But yet, how wonderful to know that Jesus is fully aware of all of our mistakes even before we make them. And yet, listen, he loves us before it, he loves us during it, and he loves us after it. Because Peter's going to fail and deny the Lord, but after he fails and denies the Lord, he's going to humbly repent, and Jesus is going to love him and forgive him, and he's going to restore him. And let that be a reminder, perhaps for some of you this morning, Jesus always offers opportunity, even after failure. Always available because of who he is. Let's stand. Let's pray together.